I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Yes. Hi. Welcome. (laughs) Listen, it's been a rough couple days. It's been a rough weekend for both Madigan and I. I mean, actually, it hasn't even been a rough weekend for me. I just stayed up way, way too late last night for no good reason. I've just been hungover as fuck all weekend. And it's like day two. I feel awful. Yeah. A two day hangover is like very intense. It's very, it's honestly fairly normal for me. Like the first day will be a lot of like vomiting and things like that. And then the second day is more like, I feel like a normal person's hangover where they have like a headache and the body aches and things like that. I always throw up. Always. Yeah. Always, always, always throw up. And I, it's a bummer when I don't throw up the night of, because then I know it's coming the next day. Yeah. And it always feels so much worse the next day. So yeah, I was like legit bedridden all day yesterday. I felt like hell. Stayed in bed all day. Oh, it's early. It's early on a Sunday morning for us too. So we're, we're waking up with you all. It really is. I mean, you're lucky I showered this morning. I was considering not. I, I was showered like, last no. night. I was like preempting. I'm like, there's no way. I have too much going on tomorrow. A shower is not going to be one yeah. of them. I'm showering before bed. Yeah. Well, welcome everyone to our second Black History Month episode. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to start this episode out by giving a quick correction to last week's episode. Well, tell uh, them how you got this correction. You can't just talk about oh, that. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so I, I was filled with um, anxiety whenever I saw... So, okay, I opened Instagram. I opened both our... Um, your Angry Neighborhood Feminist Instagram, and then also my personal Instagram, and I saw that Alelia Bundles was following both accounts. Yeah. And so, you know, followed her back. 
Well, explain who that is. I I am getting there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm trying to help the people with the I'm context. I'm getting there. Okay. So if you'll remember last week, uh, whenever I was talking about Madam C.J. Walker, her daughter's name was Alelia. And I was like, well, that's very interesting. Uh, that's a very unusual name. So I, you know tapped on it. And sure enough, it is Madam C.J. Walker's great, great, great granddaughter. Wild. <laughs> uh, and Who has so, the same name as her daughter, which is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That family legacy. Yeah. You know, that's a big thing in my family too. Like I names get like revived and reused over and over again. Oh, beautiful. Uh, and so, you know, I texted Madigan and I was like, how cool is this? Like that's, that's so, you know, interesting. And then I was like in my, my personal messages kind of like doing something and I saw, that she was typing something to me. You know how like on Instagram it'll say like typing yeah. in your in your messages if somebody is sending you something. And I was like, Ugh. like I'm like <laughs> sweating, like, oh no, like what's because when you do these episodes, especially like these biography episodes, we've had people reach out before yeah. who, you know, knew the people or were family members of one of the subjects. Right. And we'll add information or we'll correct things and you know. Yeah, whatever. but it's very nerve wracking. It is nerve wracking right? because you always want to portray the person as truthfully and respectfully as possible. But when you have so many different articles and also there's so many different things that can be misquoted or rewritten or misremembered that we aren't always going to get it right 100% of the time. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Especially like the further you go back in history. Totally. I feel like it just gets harder and harder and harder. Certainly. Yeah, so um, she wrote me and I'm so grateful for her, you know, writing in and offering her um, expertise yeah. on this subject. So she does have a website that we can um, put in the show notes of this episode if you want to kind of like read a little bit of the of the stuff that she has written about Madam C.J. Walker because she has dedicated her life to researching Madam C.J. Walker. Oh so my God. she has I mean, all hey, of the information. If my great-great-grandmother was someone or great-great-great-grandmother was someone like Madam C.J. Walker, I would be doing the same thing. I'd be like, this is my life's work now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so she offered a few corrections that I want to share with everybody on the podcast today. Uh, first is that Sarah Breedlove, Madam C.J. Walker, was not forced to marry Moses McWilliams, who was her first husband who she okay. married at 14. Yeah. Uh, by her own telling, she said, quote, I got married at 14 to get a home of my own to escape the treatment of my cruel brother-in-law. So she did choose to enter into that union. Choose, um, but kind of like under certain circumstances, yes, it sounds like. yes. Yeah. Uh, she worked as a cook and a pharmacist, and uh, she had $1.50 when she arrived in Denver. And I think I said $1.05 or something like right. that, which doesn't seem like a lot now, but, but the difference between then. 50 cents and five cents is, uh, is a little bit at that, at that time. Definitely. Um, also, I had said that Annie Malone, who was the um, person that Madam C.J. Walker had like right. worked for it was and like learned the other from. entrepreneur, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I had said that she didn't really market in black newspapers, that she marketed mostly in white newspapers. Uh -huh. And Alelia Bundles says that that's not the case, or she doesn't think that that's the case. Okay. Uh, Madam Walker and Annie Malone were rivals, but she's got no evidence that Annie Malone didn't market in black newspapers. Okay. So I wonder how that came to be then that like rumor or whatever yeah I don't know I didn't watch the Netflix series um, self-made and I do believe that Alelia Bundles 
was a um, consultant or like they, they had spoken to her okay. when they made that series. However, she does say that their relationship in that series is misrepresented. Um, How was the relationship portrayed in the series? Like they were buddies or like they weren't buddies? It says that, or she says that um, Annie Malone was badly misrepresented. So I'm guessing they made her out to be worse than she was. I understand. But I understand. again, I haven't seen the I series. Could, I could also see that. I feel like it would happen a lot where, you know, there's two sides to every story. So if you're telling Madam C.J. Walker's story... Maybe it, maybe some people want to portray her more as the villain to make Madam C.J. Walker look better, where in reality that maybe wasn't the case. It's just been more heightened. Right. Yeah. I think it just makes for better TV. Totally. I think that that's probably what exactly. it is. Exactly. Pitting two exactly. women more against each other. But again, I haven't seen the series, so please correct me if I'm wrong. And pitting two black women against each other, if that's the case, not cute. Don't Icky. do it. Yeah, we don't love it. Um, Sarah Breedlove met Charles Joseph Walker in St. Louis because I said, you know, there was so much um, contradicting information about where they met. Right. Uh, and like some were like, oh, they met after they met to went to Denver and oh no, they met while they were in St. Louis. Okay. But she says that they met in St. Louis and that he did not request the divorce, that Madam C.J. Walker initiated the divorce. Interesting. Which I actually like. I let, like uh, remind me about her second husband and because I remember talking about Moses her second husband wasn't all that great either or was he better I can't remember no I don't think that he was great either no okay it was then but then did she get married again after that I'm trying to remember yes, now so then that's when she married Charles Joseph Walker that's where she right. got yes, her name yes, CJ yes, yes. Walker okay because yeah. I, I was thinking that maybe that second husband was the Walker but then, never mind never mind yes so together um I'm so grateful that she offered up all of this information. It's so helpful, again, because when you're dealing with historical figures, you don't always know what is fact and what isn't. Yeah. So I'm really, really grateful that uh, she chimed in with all of that information. Yeah. She also linked to a new hair care line called Madam by Madam C.J. Walker. It's a uh -huh. whole new hair care line um, under that kind of Madam C.J. Walker banner. Right. So we can link that as well in the show notes if anybody is interested in checking that out. I'm definitely going to purchase some products yeah. and give those a try. Fantastic. Uh, but yes, so we will link the blog post from Alelia Bundles. She actually wrote a blog post about the two women, Annie Malone and Madam C.J. Walker. So we'll link that if you want to give that a read. And then also definitely check out Madam by Madam C.J. Walker. And again, a huge, 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 huge thank you <laughs> to Alelia Bundles for Alelia, reaching out. Alelia, how did you out. find us? Like, I mean, that's the thing that always blows me away is that somehow they come upon these episodes and they listen, like they actually listen and then they respond to us. Like, that's wild. That's what's weird, right? No, it's awesome. It's very awesome. But like in my head, I'm like, it doesn't compute. I'm like, how did you find me? You know yeah. what I mean? Like our little old, our little old show podcast. here. But I mean, obviously so appreciative of her spending the time to communicate with us, to set some of the records straight to really talk to you about more of her story and about what she's doing with her hair care line now. Yeah. I love that she is continuing her great, great, great grandmother's legacy. It's yes. An, like it's an unbelievably amazing life she's living. Yeah. And I just feel so privileged that like we get to tell oh. these stories and, yeah. you know, keep, you know, keep these people's stories alive on our little podcast. I know. So. It's so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have more stories to tell. This was what we were originally going to be covering last week. 
Um, but Madigan has had her, a tough time getting her shit together the last few weeks. So we are now today going to be talking about the Tuskegee Airmen. And yes. this has been on our list probably since last year, Black History Month. We put it yeah. on there. And There's a lot to cover. Like this story yeah. is layers. So many layers. And so I wanted to say right off the bat, I got pretty much all of my information from like eight different history.com articles. Did you go to that same where it showed you all the articles then you could just go from there? Yes. And also, by the way, because my brain... I'm is so overwhelmed with stuff right now that I wanted, I read a lot of articles, but I also was like, I need color and pictures right now. So I absorbed a lot of my stuff through history.com videos. There's a ton of like YouTube videos that history.com put up about the Tuskegee airmen. I think there's like four or five. And then also the, um, stuff you should know podcast released an episode on the Tuskegee airmen. That's great. They're always great. It's so funny how you and I prefer to do notes differently because I have a really hard time watching or listening to something where I constantly have to be pausing Pausing and replaying Mm -hmm. and things like that where I'm much more like visual where I like to be reading something and then copying it down in my own words after that. Like, So it's just funny how our brains work differently when it comes to taking notes. It very much depends on where I'm at. I would say actually like eight times out of ten I would rather or maybe not would rather but I do use like websites right and like stuff that I have to read yeah um but sometimes I just like yesterday whenever I was like really getting into well, no, the I thick of taking smart. my notes I was like I can't my brain can't do it but, like, <laughs> like, but see to me that's almost harder that's more brain power for me because of the stopping and starting yep. and I, I have and such rewinding a and, short-term memory mm-hmm. and then if dates are thrown in there I'm like I don't know and then also much. you have to be very careful and I try to be very cognizant of this as well especially when you're listening to another podcast you don't want to repeat it you don't want <laughs> yeah you want to make sure that like you're putting things into your own words and you're checking their sources as yeah. well you know so and you're giving a different perspective than just somebody else's spiel but yeah all my stuff is from the history.com articles I did watch a few of the shorter videos I've got to say these are some of the best looking men I've ever seen in my wow. life wow um for real like they showed a few pictures where I was just like Honey, somebody's granddaddy <laughs> is very hot. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. These men are like unbelievable, and they are also not only unbelievably good looking, they are also unbelievably talented and smart and wonderful. And let's let's tell the story. Let's get into it. So I wanted to give a little bit of background about Black Americans in the military. So. Black Americans have been serving in the military since before they were even considered Americans. And this was something, you know, I didn't even think about putting it in those terms. But when I was listening to the Stuff You Should Know podcast, that's how they put it. And it's it's true. So black people served when they were still enslaved during the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 and then the Civil War. But they weren't like officially part of the U.S. military for the most part. Well, you know, it's kind of strange because I, I do feel like there were members of both the Union and the Confederacy who were like, quote unquote, black soldiers, although they weren't always given weapons necessarily. See, that's the thing where I feel like it was a little bit different because they were given uniforms, you know, but then I also think of the Revolutionary War going Mm -hmm. to Hamilton in my head. Yeah, they had that like black battalion that went out. So like there is evidence, obviously, of the military using black people for fighting purposes and things like that, but they weren't seen. And there was a quote probably somewhere in my notes, but essentially military leaders and officials believed that 
the black military people were not smart or skilled right. enough mm-hmm. or not capable of training enough to be yep. full-fledged military members. Which is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, and obviously it's hypocritical and they had to have known it was hypocritical because they were constantly using black Americans or black people even before they considered them to be Americans to fight in their wars and die for their country. Right. Um, But there were also so many beliefs at that time when we talk about eugenics and other things like that, where there was such a strong belief that the black community physically was not capable of doing the same thing or the white community didn't have the mental capacity. Exactly. Or like their brains were different or their heads or bigger sizes or, you know, there were all of these horrible quote unquote medical misconceptions at that time that were just flat out lies that I think was, that was a very easy like excuse for a lot of people to continue on with their very like racist standards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, This one I found very interesting and we should definitely cover them at some point, but during World War I, the Harlem Hellfighters, which great name. Um, They were an all-black regiment. They were sent to fight with the French because the U.S. didn't want them. Like They were like, we have this entire, we've got this big black, uh, fully black regiment. Do you guys want them? Like, we don't want them. And the French were like, yes, we want them, (laughs) please. And they were awarded the Quo de de Guerre Yes. We are not good with the French we, accent we on are this not. because when I was doing the four year anniversary episode, there's a few times in there that we were trying to speak French and it didn't go well at well, any point. I'm also stupid for not writing this out phonetically. Like that's what I should have done. I'll always bold something to remember to go back later to look yeah. it up. Never do yeah. it. I never do well, it. I usually just write it out phonetically. Like I'm like, this is how you say it. But I didn't do that this time. But anyway, they were awarded um, this award in France for heroism in combat, this black regiment. Right. So they were being recognized for their heroics overseas in World War One as an American black regiment. Definitely. When they weren't being recognized at home. Yeah. And like you said, the common belief was that black people were not as capable as white people when it came to serving in the military. They were less competent. And this belief was definitely raging before World War II. I mean, right. also, this is corresponding with... Um, when phrenology, which is like the that whole like pseudoscience about the shape of your right. skull exactly. and eugenics was huge. So in 1925, the Army War College did a study about the fitness and suitability of black soldiers in the military, and it was brutal, to say the least. It just reinforced every racist notion that anyone ever had about the fitness or lack thereof about a black person to serve in the military. It basically said that black people were not intellectually capable of receiving theoretical training and were only good as combat soldiers. And even then they were so dumb that training them might not even be worth it. Yeah. So they also said in the report that black people were a subspecies of the human family that performed poorly as soldiers due to their cowardly, subservient, superstitious, amoral, and mentally inferior nature. Yeah, it's Go fuck yourself. Very upsetting. And Super this is upsetting. genuinely the military's official stance at the time. And for a while. Even despite this, there were black people who were serving in the military and advancing in the military during right. this time in 1940. So prior to, just prior to World War II, a man named Benjamin O. Davis would become the first black military general. And I bring his name up not only because 
because like what a feat at a time whenever that was the military's official stance on but. on black soldiers. Um, but also because his son Benjamin Davis Jr. would go on to become a commander of the Tuskegee Airmen, the first commander yeah. of the Tuskegee Airmen. It's unbelievable. So as another world war approached in 1940, U.S. Army Chief of Staff George Marshall remarked that it wasn't the quote time for critical experiments, which inevitably have a highly destructive effect on morale should they invite black people into the army. At the time, census records show that only a few dozen licensed black pilots lived in the whole U.S. prior to World War II. So it wasn't that they like didn't know how to do it, but there were only that many licensed flyers. And because of that, and because of, again, this report from 1925, there was still this belief in 1940 that the black community would not have the same level of strength and ability that white people right. would. And, and intelligence. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's important because it is within the early 1940s that there is a huge push to desegregate the military. Right. I mean, and also we should point out that in the 20s and 30s, like aviation was huge. You had yeah. all of these like Amelia famous Earhart. aviators, Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh, um, right? And like it it was fairly new as well, like this concept of, of aviation. I mean, I think it was in like 1905 when the Wright brothers created the first like motorized aircraft. Yeah, this is like new and hot and exciting. Right, and it was captivating the nation and it was seen as this incredibly prestigious thing, yes. right? Um, and again, they believed that black Americans weren't capable of this, even though that was constantly being disproven by, like we talked about Bessie Coleman. Um, and then there's also a man named C. Alfred Anderson, who was considered the father of black aviation, uh -huh. who taught himself how to fly a plane because he Had couldn't no get to teach him, yeah. anyone to teach him. He wasn't being accepted into any flight schools. Uh -huh. So he saved up his money. He bought his own aircraft and taught himself how to fly and land a plane. Love and he it. actually went on to be an instructor, the lead instructor at Tuskegee, which is <sighs> just absolutely beautiful, wild. Unreal. Absolutely yeah. beautiful. So going into World War II, the exclusion of black Americans from becoming aerial pilots in World War I had led to advocacy by many prominent African Americans who wished to enlist and train as military aviators. So this was before the formation of the Air Force. It was at the time called the Army Air Corps, uh -huh. and it was by far the most prestigious branch of the U.S. military because... Right. The skill to be a pilot, period, is big brain energy that I don't have, first of right. all. But, but then, then also to, at this time, mm -hmm. when it's all so new, like it really, I almost, to me, it reminds me of like the equivalent of being like an astronaut today or something like yeah. that, where there's only a few people that were seen as like being intelligent enough to like do the right. thing. And then it's not even just like commercial flying. Like this is a time when They're like fighting. if you just flew across the country that made the newspaper. Yeah. This is like you're having to do like trick flying and stuff like that and All like around shooting the world. shooting other planes out of the sky, which is like terrifying yeah. and very like an incredibly difficult thing to do. Definitely. Uh, so in 1938, with Europe teetering on the brink of another world war, President Roosevelt announced that he was going to expand the civilian pilot training program. So yeah. this program was put in place was put in place basically because FDR realized that there, like you said, were not enough pilots to man military planes, and so he's like, "Let's get civilians trained in flight so that 
we could pull them for use in the military. Right. You know? I do also want to point out that some believe that this move by Roosevelt was a result of Republican nominee Wendell Wilkie promising to desegregate the military if he was elected president. So some people believe that the pressure from the NAACP, along with this Republican candidate, was what pushed President Roosevelt to start making some changes in the military. And starting in 1939, several historically black colleges were included in the civilian pilot training program created by Congress. So it was typically people who were either undergrad or graduate students, very, very intelligent, like college educated people that were being invited to train in Tuskegee. Yeah. And like you said, it was pressure on FDR. Um, There was pressure kind of coming from all sides. There was the NAACP putting pressure, a lot of black journalists putting pressure. Yeah. And also Eleanor Roosevelt was putting pressure. Yes, because Um, she went and visited the, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't during that time that she visited. It was after they had done some training and some flying right. and things like that that she eventually made a visit, which kind of like put the Tuskegee Airmen like in the media zeitgeist a little bit more. Right. So FDR um, ended up appropriating funds to this program to include African-Americans in this program. So for the training site, the War Department chose the Tuskegee Army Airfield in Tuskegee, Alabama, which was then under construction. Um, And again, this is home to the prestigious Tuskegee Institute, which I feel like we've spoken about before. Right, started by uh, Booker T. Washington. Yes. Yeah, and located in the Jim Crow South at the time. Which is like... Great that this is an institution that was created by Booker T. Washington. Love it. Here for that. Not so great that we are sending all of our black men to the Jim Crow South. Yeah, I mean, it's a bummer. Uh, They called the effort to train these men an experiment, but because that makes me think of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, uh, which we covered on a past episode, I'm going to refer to it as the program moving forward. I don't like to... Because if you call it an experiment with the word Tuskegee in there, like it does kind of create a very negative connotation and this actually worked really well. So experiment kind of sounds like it was set up to fail. Where well, this I think actually, it was. Right, yeah. but but this didn't fail. So we're not yes. going to call it an experiment because it just worked. Yes. <laughs> Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So black newspapers and thought leaders at the time were especially keen to get black Americans into this most prestigious branch of the military because they wanted to launch what they called the double V campaign. So the double V campaign basically stood for the first V being victory in Europe, self-explanatory. Love it. And the second V being victory at home. So victory at home was meant to, was intended to battle the perception of black people back home by fighting as valiantly and bravely as possible overseas. They so were when like, they we come can home, we ourselves. can hopefully desegregate America. Right, yeah. That. Let's exactly. desegregate the military and, you know, let's prove to everyone that, like, black people are just as capable, just as smart, just as brave as any other American. And then maybe that will fix all the problems at home. Right. So the program's trainees, like you said, nearly all of them were college graduates or undergraduates, and they came from all over the country. Mm -hmm. In addition to 1,000 pilots, the Tuskegee program ended up training 14,000 navigators, bombardiers, instructors, aircraft and engine mechanics, and control tower operators, and other maintenance and support staff. Which I think Madigan had that I exact same thing. literally just mouthed that exact paragraph. Yeah. That was just funny because you had like our notes, literally the last two things were in the exact same order. And I was like, okay, great. Going right yeah, along. We're moving oh, right great. along. Uh, this is funny. The next thing in my notes, I write the quote Tuskegee experiment, oh. like putting it in sarcastic font in whatever way I can. Took a big leap in April of 1941, which, like we mentioned, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt came to visit, which helped with the publicity for the program. They uh, took her up to fly. They went around, and she was like, you you guys know how to fly. Yeah, you know, like- I mean, and the chief flight instructor of the program, who was the father of black aviation, C. Alfred Anderson, is the one who took her up. So yeah. she was also showing, it was this show of faith as well, that like, yes. I trust you to take me up into the sky, this person who taught yourself how to fly Exactly. You know, and then she came down happy as a clam. Yeah. And it showed people that these men were fully capable. Yeah. Yeah. It was huge for the publicity of the program. So the um, the War Department had a tradition and policy that mandated segregation of African-Americans into separate military units staffed by white officers. Now, this is not what black leaders and the NAACP had initially wanted. So when they were pushing for these programs to be put in place, initially they were pushing for full integration. Like they wanted them to be integrated with the rest of the Army Air Corps. Yeah, there would not be separate camps for black and white officers or anything like that. Everybody would be treated equally and given the same... sort of living situation and amenities, so on and so forth. Yeah. The U.S. military said, well, the best we can do is give you a full black squadron. So take it or leave it. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. And and they did that. And the soldiers were made to live in these primitive tents on the airfield. Um, and they really weren't given the same sort of comfort as any of the white soldiers. So in April of 1943, the first full squadron of African-American fighter pilots, the 99th Pursuit Squadron, received orders for deployment to the Mediterranean Theater of Operations. Now, the 99th Squadron was an all-black 
was all black in every way. Like we said before, they trained not only the fighter pilots, who I feel like get a lot of the recognition and glory, Uh um, but also all of the maintenance staff and the technical support staff. They are all technically... Tuskegee Airmen, right? Yes, and there are multiple groups. There's the 79th, there's the 100th, 301st, 302nd, and then eventually there would be another group created out of some of those other groups, which would be the 332nd fighter group. So there are a few numbers that are going to be shouted out, but know that it's all under the same umbrella of the Tuskegee Airmen. Right, yeah. So that was April of 1943. Uh-huh. By June, there were three other black fighter squadrons. Exactly, so there's right. like more coming on board all the time. And the 332nd continued to fly escort for bombers through the rest of the summer of 1944. Which and was incredibly difficult and very, very dangerous yes. and flying over enemy territory. Yes, and they were so disciplined and their techniques were so excellent because these men had also really bonded because yeah. they came from a shared background. And then also I think that there was this unity. They were being treated badly and more differently than, you know, their white counterparts. And they were, but they were together in that, right. which I think does create camaraderie. A bond. And I yeah. think a lot of them, there was, I feel like in just a lot of the things that I read about the individual men that were kind of highlighted throughout that experience, it seems like they were all very, very sure of themselves and their abilities and their intelligence. Yeah. And they were able to lift each other up and work together to prove everybody wrong. They had something to prove. You for know sure. what I mean? And it yeah. wasn't it wasn't like I'm sure it was very belittling to them. So I don't mean to say it that way, but I think where some people would shy away after being told you can't do something, this was not those men's experiences. No, no. And they were so excellent that they couldn't be ignored, even from the white higher-ups in the military. The Stars and Stripes Daily Military Magazine wrote often about the 332nd. Like, they put them in their their magazine almost every day because of the, like, tricks and everything that they were doing. They did another thing, and then they did Mm -hmm. another thing. Yeah, they were running all of these missions throughout Eastern Europe and Northern Africa. So it was really just very impressive that they were able to do this under such oppressive circumstances as well. And big news no matter who was flying these planes. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. For identification purposes, the tails of their planes were painted red, giving them their nickname, the Red Tails, which I I love. love. And so it was even kind of noticed by like enemies. It was like, oh my God, the Red Tails are here. The Red Tails are coming. (laughs) Um, And I think it's funny. So that was actually one of the names for the Washington football team. They were going to be called the Red Tails. That was like one of the names in the mix. Yeah. Keegan doesn't like it. I see your face. (laughs) They didn't pick it. I I know. Yeah, they they went with the commanders. I I just feel like maybe just, just be careful, Washington, because your last name was very suspect. And I feel like if you're going to take another name that has been used predominantly by a minority group, um, just make sure all your, all your shit's right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. mm. So by the end of the war, the unit had downed 108 enemy aircrafts. They received 744 air medals, 150 distinguished flying crosses, 14 bronze stars, and one silver star. It's a lot of stuff. Yes. It's a lot of stuff. They were absolute all-stars. Yeah. And so because of this, I think that they thought, you know, they've been serving alongside white officers. They've been risking their lives for their country. They really believed in this double V strategy. Yeah. Um, and so they thought, I think that they were going to have a certain kind of reception whenever they got home. Totally. And unfortunately, as they should have had. <laughs> yeah, as they should have had. But unfortunately that wasn't the case. Like if you watch those um, history.com 
videos on YouTube, right. they interview a lot of the Tuskegee Airmen, and one of them describes, you know, coming back, coming down the gang- gangplank, kind of side by side with white people in the military, white officers and white soldiers. And as he's coming down the gangplank, he sees that there are signs that separate, you know, it says colored soldiers this way, white soldiers this way. And that was kind of indicative of like what he was stepping back into, which was a um, segregated segregated America that was pretty much indifferent to all the sacrifices that these men had made for their country. And so... In March of 1945, at the Freeman Field Airfield in Indiana, and this was like a couple of months, I think, before the end of the war, a group of Tuskegee-trained pilots decided to push back against their continued mistreatment within the military. So they were like, look, we're back home. Things aren't good out there in the world. We're still, you know, being segregated. And then also within the military, after everything that we've done, we've earned our spot as officers in this incredibly prestigious branch of the military. Um, We're still being discriminated against within the military and on military bases. And how are they going to desegregate America when they can't desegregate the military yet? So that was their first primary focus. Yeah. So... Officers of the Tuskegee bomber crew were denied entry into the officers club there on the Freeman Field base. The base commander at the time was this like incredibly overtly racist man and he would not permit black officers into the club. Robert Selway. Robert Selway. I didn't even write his name down. Piece of shit. Colonel Robert Selway. Uh, Yeah. So he was like, I'm going to create these two equal clubhouses one for the white officers and one for the black officers don't Spoiler worry alert. they're gonna be equal it's gonna be great you're gonna it's very donald trump it's gonna be great you're gonna love it they were not equal yeah, it wasn't surprise. great and they didn't love it so the white officers were actually classified as instructors while the black officers were titled as trainees giving them lesser status at least in name so The White Officers Club had a game room fully equipped with pool tables, tennis tables, card tables, all the tables one could ever want in their entire lives. On the other hand, the Black (laughs) Clubhouse had nary a fun table in sight and was heated by coal stoves. The Black Officers nicknamed it Uncle Tom's Cabin and refused to go into the club. They're like, no, this is fucking bullshit. Yeah, no, it really does feel like this was like the straw that broke the camel's back. They're like, you know what? For real. We've put up with a lot of shit. This is it. We can't do this anymore. And so they um, basically established what would later be called the Freeman Field Mutiny. Yeah, which to me I think of as really being almost like a sit-in kind of situation. It was like this civil disobedience, silent protest kind of thing. Which was a huge risk at the time. A huge risk. So the Tuskegee men rallied over a hundred others who refused to compromise and decided that they would not put up with this kind of segregation in their own backyard. I mean, like this is their home at yeah. the time. Like they're they're staying on this base. Um, and they had, you know, of course, given up so much and made so many sacrifices for their country for them to be treated like this and was they were ex- spit in the face. They were expecting equality and they were told they would be given it and then they weren't. And right. that would enrage me. Right. Like don't, oh, don't yeah. tell me that I'm going to be comforted and treated well and then 
completely go back on your word. Yeah. That's the thing that I would be like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Yeah. <sighs> so at times, um, or at this time and in times prior to this, if you as a soldier were arrested for disobeying orders during wartime, the penalties could be extremely harsh, including imprisonment and even the ultimate penalty could be death. Right. Uh, still, the officers organized a protest resulting in the arrest of over 100 black soldiers. Yeah, so essentially what they did is they would send in small groups of black soldiers at a time into the white officers clubhouse. They would like grab a drink, start playing some pool and just kind of hang out until somebody came in and told them to get out. Then they would send in another group and that group would do it. And they just kind of continually did this for a long period of time until they were finally, a, a, a large portion of them were arrested. Right, and it wasn't just the officers either. Like the other soldiers, the other black soldiers who weren't officers were also very much in support of this. They were like, look, we've got you. We're behind you. Whatever you need. Yeah. So 58 officers were released to their quarters on April 9th, but three were charged with jostling a white commanding officer. So this really got the attention of the higher ups and they ended up bringing in outside inspectors and they concluded their investigations and they found that the officers were fully entitled to the same privileges as the white officers. And they found that the base commander completely mishandled this situation. And in fact, he was relieved of his station after this. They, they brought yeah. somebody else in. But there were still a lot of issues for those who were arrested. Those 101 officers that were put under arrest were flown secretly to Godman Army Field in Kentucky, where they were put on temporary duty there for 90 days. The officers charged with jostling were held back to be court-martialed. And according to some sources, officers still at Freeman continued trying to enter the white officers' clubhouse, continuing the protests that the other men had begun. 12 days after the arrest, the 101 black officers were released with a reprimand on their records after pressure from the NAACP. Following their release, George S. Shiler, which in in quotations or sorry, not quotations, in parentheses, I wrote work, um, (laughs) a a columnist for the African-American Weekly in Pittsburgh Courier said it is impossible for a man to be a first class officer if constantly forced into a second class position. It is a pleasure to note that the War Department has had good sense to release these young men to duty. The three jostlers then stood trial. Two of them, Martin Thomas and Shirley Clinton, were acquitted and fined, but Roger Bill Terry, represented by Thurgood Marshall, was found guilty of jostling and given a $150 fine and a dishonorable discharge in November of 1945 with a reduction in rank. And that wouldn't be rectified until 1995 when President Bill Clinton pardoned Bill Terry, restored his rank, and refunded his $150. That's absolutely (laughs) incredibly upsetting. Well, and the other good thing about that is it wasn't just Bill Terry who had some reparations here. He also removed General Hunter's reprimand letters from the permanent files of 15 of the 104 officers that were charged and the armed forces promised to destroy the rest of the reprimands. I don't know if they really did, but essentially his goal was to make sure that the records of these men's careers were cleared, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So this event drew tons of attention to discrimination in the military and the mounting pressure ultimately resulted in president Truman integrating the armed forces with executive order 9981. So like, this mutiny led directly to that because it had become clear to President Truman that the United Military was that a United Military was the most effective military. They're like, yeah. we can't have all of this infighting. Well, like, and this is the other thing that I think is the most 
is the most hypocritical part of it all is that we were sending these soldiers over to fight in World War II or we were fighting against Hitler, right. one of the most racist, awful human mm-hmm. beings of all time. They couldn't make the connection. They couldn't make that connection, yet they're treating their soldiers both abroad and at home absolutely terribly. And they couldn't see that they were doing the exact same thing. And I think for a lot of the black officers, they were like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> like, do you, how can you not see what mm-hmm. you're doing to us is so unbelievably similar to what's happening in other yeah. parts of the country that we're fighting against. Yeah, other parts of the world, yeah. I mean, there was one Tuskegee Airman who was interviewed who basically said, like, after he came home, he left the military. Like, he was like, I just, I couldn't believe that we were continuing, like, they were continuing to treat us this way after everything we went through together yeah. as, like, a brotherhood overseas. Um, and again, like, yeah, fighting against fascism, fighting against, like, racism. Uh, and then we come home and we're treated like this. And very often, a lot of these military bases are in the Jim Crow South. And he's right. like, I'm not going to allow them to... Which I respect 100%. Yeah, he's like, they're going to move me and put me in these bases in the South. And you know what? I'm done. Like, I just, I don't want to do it. And, like, yeah. I completely understood that point of view and this was huge like the fact that they were able to integrate the military a decade before the modern civil rights movement would really gain speed in America Mm, that is a big thing to think about yeah I didn't really put two and two together that it was like a full decade yeah yeah I mean the United States Air Force in a lot of ways led the way and the country in integration and equal opportunity like they they were kind of like the first to give you a glimpse of what this could look like they were if the we trailblazers. just integrated yeah. uh, <laughs> see, everybody, you know what I mean? See how much more harmony and peace we could have if we just didn't fucking hate each other all the yeah, time? Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> yeah, and so by July of 1949, the Tuskegee program had ended and its all-black squadrons had been deactivated because they weren't needed anymore. Yeah. You know, everything was fully integrated at that point. Which is a yay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's not to say that there weren't still, of course, tons of challenges and discrimination and well, because um, you're still having human beings as soldiers where Mm -hmm. racism still exists with with certain worldviews. Exactly. So it's not like everything was sunshine and roses for every single soldier in the military, just because it was integrated, but it was a huge step to have the, actual like corporation, not the word I'm looking for. It's early in the morning and I'm hungover, (laughs) but the whole system, that's what I'm looking for. Support you. You know what I mean? Where even if there's those other little problems, at least there's more of an institution to back you up now. Yes. Yeah. You have something official (laughs) from like a government institution. Like the president says this is okay. Mm -hmm. So shut the fuck up. Right. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And members of the Tuskegee Airmen continued to go on and do great things, both inside and outside of the military. I mean, I really do think that there is something to be said about people showing faith in others and like what that can do for your self-esteem, like being told that you are capable and like able to do something. I think it can unlock something in you. But that's what gives us the courage to be able to try. I think that there are so many things in our own minds that keep us back and that stop us from trying something new or stop us from trying something that we love, but maybe looks like it's going to be too difficult. If somebody just gives you that one little nudge of support, it really does make all the difference. It does. And, um, Benjamin Davis Jr., who we mentioned earlier, one of the hottest men I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Mother Um, may I. 
uh, he, you know, he had faced discrimination prior to, even though his father yeah. was like the first black military general and he himself had gone to West Point as well. Yeah. He like faced, this was like a legendary family. Yeah. In the military. Yeah. He faced so much discrimination at West Point. You know, he was kept separate from the other white students uh, in much like far poorer conditions. Right. And then went on to kind of like command the he, Tuskegee Airmen. He was unbelievable. I mm-hmm. was reading that he was quite a disciplinarian. He was like very, very tough, which I can definitely see. He was one of the first black airmen to ever see combat. He was part of that first group. And after the war for his leadership, he received several honors, including a message from Harry Truman asking him to help draft the desegregation plan for the military, which is pretty amazing. And they named a U.S. Army Air Force Academy after him in 2019 as well. Yeah. And he also went on to become the first black brigadier general in the Air Force. Hell yeah. So, I mean, just crushing it, crushing it all the way around. For real. Uh, There was also Coleman Young, who was a Tuskegee Airman and a member of the Freeman Mutiny, and he was elected Detroit's first black mayor. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I also read a little bit about Charles McGee, who I'll mention. Mm -hmm. Charles was one of the last surviving members of the Tuskegee Airmen. He retired with the rank of colonel after 30 years, having flown a combined 409 combat missions in World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, more than any other other Air Force pilot, period. To this day. Nuts. Yeah. He founded Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated in 1971, which is a nonprofit support group. For his 100th birthday in 2019, Charles flew with a co-pilot in a jet which took him over the Dover Air Force Base, where he was met with a large group waiting to celebrate him. So he fucking flew a plane on his 100th birthday. Like, what a badass. That's amazing. (laughs) Terrifying for that (laughs) co-pilot. Truly terrifying. I mean, like... Don't have a stroke. Don't have a stroke. For Like, I I don't want to have to take over. I really don't want to but it's amazing like so many of these men went on to have like such distinguished military careers and fought in so many wars and became such pillars to what i think is what created that integrated military like they were a part of creating what that would look like yeah i mean and i think the reason why there's so much excellence within this particular group of men is also because they had to be better i mean that's something that we talk about a lot but when you are part of a minority group you have to be better than everyone else you can't just be a good pilot you have to be a great pilot and they fucking were yeah i mean it's there is a lot of things that i was reading where for a while there was a misunderstanding that they had like never lost a pilot in any of their missions which that was not true but that was a myth that was kind of carried on for many many years that they were like so good that they never right. lost anyone which you know I mean it speaks to their like legendary status it that does. people would even think or say that yeah you know? like truly like, it's huge um Today, every fourth Thursday in March is considered Tuskegee Airmen Day in Washington, D.C. I love that. Which is not something that I knew. I was watching one of those um, history.com videos and they mentioned that. And, you know, I just think that this story is so powerful and so important. And while it's definitely something that you hear talked about a lot, I feel like not enough. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's oftentimes mentioned kind of in passing and you don't really realize, one, what these men were able to achieve given what they were facing at the time and two, how instrumental they were in 
kind of like the burgeoning civil rights movement. Definitely. And moving towards like um, desegregation and integration throughout the entire country. Yeah, a lot of the pilots in, in a couple of the interviews that I did watch were talking about how they felt like they were a great example for a lot of the other people back in the U.S. that wanted to start protesting for their civil rights Mm -hmm. and so that you know a lot of their civil disobedience tactics were inspiration for a lot of people back home to start standing up for themselves as well right and saying i am capable i think that that's huge as well for you know black people back home black children back home to be able to see that like this thing matters that everyone said that you were genetically incapable of doing and um, this is just wrong you're genetically inferior yeah uh, is isn't true yeah you know look, look it can't be true because look at all of these amazing things that the tuskegee airmen did yeah you know yeah. so you know and i do feel like i have to say just before we end this episode that um i always get a little like huh, about military subjects right um i come from a military family and so like you know i get it but also just like yeah i mean any anytime i think about someone like being in a plane and bombing anything i'm like you know it it makes me like i don't like the loss of human life and i don't like war and and stuff like that however it doesn't diminish uh the accomplishments of these men at all exactly yeah i am the most anti-war human being ever i was raised by extreme hippies so i couldn't agree more with you in that but also i always think of world war ii as being like a very i don't know i've always been very obsessed with it and like we're fighting the bad guys it feels like like, even though it's more nuanced than that it definitely does feel like as far as like American wars go, it feels very like black and white. Yeah. It's like, you know, good and good bad guys, bad guys, axis of evil. No, yeah. you know, but, but like the Vietnam war and things like that, completely different situations in my book and things like that. And I have a lot of issues with the military and the army yeah. and all of those things, but we would be remiss not to tell the story of these people that completely changed that entire world. So yes. that there would be access to anybody who wants to be a part of the military. Yes. I also want to say, because I, I just feel like people are going to, um, this is going to stick for people. I, I know that the axis of evil was not world war two. I know that, but <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay. So just, I'm going to clarify that before anybody shows up in my DMS. Like, um, actually um, I know. Whenever, if anyone ever shows up in your DMs, just tell me. I'll come after them. It's fine. Unless it's Alelia Bundles. In Unless which case, it's Alelia Bundles in case DM well, us all day. DMs open, <laughs> you know. Wide open. Just be nice. If we make mistakes, just be nice. That's all we ask. Always. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention uh, was that the link in our show notes has been going to the wrong place for our our merch store. Oh, no. So I am going through and updating all of those links. Okay. So they, they will be the correct <laughs> links. So if you've gone in there and you've clicked on it and you're like, this isn't taking me where it should take me, um, try again uh, <laughs> because we're fixing that. Well, thank you for noticing that. I definitely did not. So <laughs> thanks for catching that little blip. No problem. Oh, my goodness. Well, if there's anything in the future that you would love for us to discuss, you can email us at neighborhoodfeminists at gmail.com com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Like Keegan just said, we got a link in the show notes for our merch store, but we also have a link in our Instagram bio if you'd rather check it out that way. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with your fellow listeners on the group page. Last but certainly not least, we appreciate it so much when you leave us a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way that you can support the two of us, and it really does mean a lot. 
All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to To rage on. on. Bye. What's up, everyone? It's Noah Daniels. Hey, y'all. I'm JJ. Hey, guys. It's Kat. And we're your hosts of the Real Hauntings Podcast. We bring on guests who share their firsthand encounter ghost stories and supernatural experiences. Now on to the trailer. I've been warned to not tell this story, but I think because of the way it ends, it's okay to tell this story. Because some people say that with certain entities, to like speak of them or talk about them or in any way like portray them as powerful will attract them to other people. The creepiest thing about it to me is a lot of times it would wait for me to notice it. Like it would just lay its arm out like this and then I'd be like, where is it? Where is it? And then I'd see it and then it would just slither back. For more information on the Real Hauntings, Real Ghost Stories podcast, make sure you check out real.fm to learn more about our podcast and many other amazing podcasts.